There is a case not just that the old model of globalization went too far and that we should welcome attempts to try and create one that is a little less intense, a little gentler, a little greener and more sustainable. What role will trade play in the global economy of the future? Can the multilateral rules-based trading system survive? Or will nationalism and protectionism lead to a world of trade barriers and trading blocks? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2020, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to this podcast conversation on how will globalization change for the AIG Global Trade Series 2020. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands, and I'm joined by Alicia Garcia Herrero and James Crabtree. Alicia is a senior fellow at the European think tank Bruegel. She is also the chief economist for Asia Pacific at Natixis and a non-resident research fellow at the think tank Real Instituto Elcano in Madrid. She's joining us today from Taipei, however. And James Crabtree is an associate professor of practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University in Singapore and a senior fellow at the School's Center on Asia and Globalization. He is also a non-resident fellow at Chatham House in London. Alicia and James, a very warm welcome to you both. Now, The death of globalization has been announced many times before, but the collapse of trade and investment as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, along with a number of structural changes in technology, digitalization, automation, not to mention political tensions in the trade sphere, suggests that indeed we are at an inflection point and that globalization as such is fundamentally changing. Now, according to The Economist magazine, the pandemic, COVID-19, will leave economies less globalized, more digitized, and less equal. Now, what is happening? How is globalization changing? Where are we moving towards? And who are the winners and losers? And I was hoping, Alicia and James, that you could help make sense of it all. Both of you have written about the pressures on globalization and this trend towards deglobalization, changes in supply chains and what have you well before the pandemic struck. Now, we're recording this in the middle of October, after approximately eight months of dealing with COVID-19. How is the global economy doing? Where are we? And how is globalization changing? Alicia? Well, first of all, it's really a pleasure to be here with you and with James. It's very interesting to talk about the things we've been talking before the pandemic, deglobalization was a trend we identified, many of us, before the pandemic, and it has only accelerated. That's going to be my call here. I also want to perhaps dwell a little bit more in, into the differences between deglobalization and decoupling. We hear a lot about decoupling between the U.S. and China, but I actually think deglobalization is a broader concept than decoupling, and, and that's what we have here as a discussion so I think it all started in 2008 with the global financial crisis. That's where the globalization starts with trade. It goes on with global value chains, which is you know slightly more complex than trade as such. 
and it continues on people to people, especially after COVID-19, but even before, even finance to some extent. And of course, the decoupling in particular of tech and finance is only pushing this deglobalization mode. So I leave it there. I know this is a conversation. I don't want to give a full speech on deglobalization. Let's talk about it as we speak. To your point that there is a fundamental difference between decoupling and deglobalization, you rightly point out that decoupling is now sort of the talk of the day because of, I think, the China-US trade war. How should we place decoupling in that overarching structure of deglobalization, which is worse, if you will? Well, I think decoupling is a process that could change the way in which the globalization was happening. So let me clarify this. Deglobalization, according to you know my understanding, starts with trade. Global value chains get more fragmented. There's a number of push uh, factors for that. Many are actually, interestingly, not geopolitical. That's more about decoupling. It's, it's really about, say, the floods in Thailand in 2014. I mean, basically, factors that uh, the rationality of efficiency had not taken into account. Yeah. So things that make global value chains shaky and they don't have to be geopolitical, as I explained. So, so basically we were operating from Thailand for many, many Asian countries in terms of the auto global value chain. You may want to have two or three entry points to, to a single country, not just one, because if it fails, you know, you're stuck. Another example was on the garment industry. So you know you could have this is the example of Inditex, but many others sourcing from Turkey to Russia. And then you had the, you know, that was a geopolitical event, actually, the plane being shut down as as you shut down, as you remember, the Russian plane entering into the Turkish airspace. So that value chain got affected. So for whatever reasons, it wasn't necessarily the decoupling we keep on talking about. As the problems became bigger and transportation costs became uh, less certain and we were moving to closer and closer value chains, there's a lot of analysis about, you know, the shrinking size of value chains. We got into a smaller globalization trend for trade and global value chains. But the coupling comes to the point of saying, you know what, there's going to be two ecosystems. So if you want to be with me, you know, these are my standards. This is my way to do things. This is my cloud, you know, come here. So that, in a way, changes that trend of fragmentation of value chains globally. You know, very many, if I may say, very many. You know, here is more about deglobalization becoming two ecosystems. And it's very hard to know which forces are going to prevail. Is it going to be two big value chains or is it going to be, and that would be the decoupling force taking, you know, the lead here? Or would it be more like fragmentation as we have had since 2008? That's the key question. I don't have an answer, but I hope that clarifies the difference between the two and who is playing which ball first. I think for trade started fragmentation and is going decoupling in a way. For tech is about decoupling, not fragmentation. For finance so far, very little of both, if anything, a little bit of decoupling because of sanctions. So depending on what type of deglobalization aspect you talk about, there is a different answer and not yet a firm answer. So what you're also suggesting, what I take from your comments is that deglobalization as such is also rather messy. I mean, it depends on the sector you're talking about. There is a, an element of economic engineering of deglobalization and a political element of, say, political engineering to deglobalization. I want to turn to James. 
and ask him about the impact of the pandemic as such. The commonplace view is that the pandemic has accelerated a number of these trends. But is the pandemic now sort of the nail in the coffin of globalization or how should we see it? I think take a big step back for a minute and try and understand what's going on here and how the pandemic played into it. So for about 20 or 30 years, let's say, from when China began to enter the global economy in the early 1980s, you had two forces that were pulling in the same direction. One was technological, where you had technologies like the beginning of the internet or better databases that allowed you to outsource production let's say, from the American Midwest to Taiwan or to China. But you also had politics and policy that was also um, facilitating these kind of changes. So that would be allowing China into the WTO or striking global or at least large regional trade deals. And so what's happened uh, in the aftermath of 2008 is that technology is, is still a kind of ambiguous force. In many ways, technology is still pushing globalization forward, particularly digital technology. But politics is pulling it back. And so that's the, the big change that you used to have an environment in which politics and policy was conducive to greater globalization. And now it's very clear that that isn't the case. And so the kind of policy that used to liberalize trade is putting up protectionism. And I think the pandemic plays into that because there have been specific issues with the pandemic to do with the effect that the recession has had on trade itself and the, the bad blood that has happened between countries because of the pandemic, really what it indicates is the lack of political cooperation. So I think I would see the pandemic more as both an accelerant but also an indicator of where we've gone wrong. The fact that we haven't been able to have any global framework or global cooperation, meaningful co global cooperation around the pandemic is very similar to the kind of political dysfunction, which means that either decoupling or deglobalization in general is being driven fundamentally by, by political forces and by political choices. And so I think that's what makes it so complicated and why we're going to see a fragmented vision of the future of globalization, to use the, the phrase that you used, Rem. How bad is this? I mean, what's the overall impact on the global economy or on our politics that we are now in this era of, say, deglobalization? I think it's a mixed picture. On the one hand, six months into the pandemic, the most recent data that came out from the World Trade Organization wasn't quite as catastrophic as we had initially feared. So the WTO, shortly after COVID hit, said world trade could fall by as much as a third in the aftermath, but now they've reassessed those figures and said it's only going to fall by less than 10%. So that's bad, but it's not catastrophically bad, given what we were hoping. The question of the long term, I think, depends on how bad the politics get. So it's unclear. None of us really know on a spectrum between all-out military conflict and some kind of new entente between the United States and China as the, the main driver of this bad blood in the global political system. None of us really know what's going to happen, but, but I think reasonable people can guess that it's not going to get much better and it could get quite a lot worse. But even outside the US and China, these political problems are much broader. So we talk often now about a globalization of regions, and partly we do that because regions are becoming much more assertive. So I used to live in India. Uh, India is also trading in a much more regional, nationalistic direction. Uh, other countries, uh, other important global actors are as well. So I think we don't know how bad the politics is going to get. 
but it's a reasonable bet that it's not going to return to anything like the kind of global cooperation which enabled and accelerated the, the period that some call hyper-globalization. And Alicia, if we follow this analysis, what are we deglobalizing towards? What does the new normal start to look like? Well, the reality is that maybe we had over-globalized, if, if you think about historical patterns. So, you know, the new normal doesn't have to be like extreme anyway. You know, it, it might just be a correction towards equilibrium, if I may say so. I mean, historical equilibrium. I think some of the reasons for that correction, if I may say that new normal you're referring to, might actually be quite benign. I mean, I understand what James said about geopolitical risk and, you know, political forces behind uh, as deglobalizing. And as I mean to say, it's not only trade, it's about people to people globalization, which before uh, COVID-19 we thought was impossible, but it is happening. And it might be here to stay depending on how risky you perceive your neighbor, you know, and from whether it's health or whether it's just uh, lack of interest, as simple as that. So, you know, I, so in other words, we're back to a new or maybe the old normal. And that old normal might actually be fostered beyond political will by something as simple as the environment. You know, we, we may actually rethink our footprint and that includes mobility and especially cross-border mobility since that is more, I mean, we've learned that after COVID-19, maybe less necessary than domestic mobility, meaning going to school or to work or whatever. And even that one is, is at stake. So my point here is that I think, I mean, and, and even trade, to be frank, maybe the whole idea of huge efficiency gains out of moving items or inputs uh, back and forth is really in question. Was it such an efficiency gain after all? So the new normal might not, again, be as bad as we see it now from the eyes of somebody who's lived through what I would call ultra globalization. And that's, I think, the way to look at it. Pros and cons. Uh, it's not all cons. I don't think it's all cons. And that's not because of protectionist reasons. It could well be, you know, simple reasons that we went too far and that it was unnecessary or even not maybe efficient, but not effective. Was our globalization model effective? Maybe not. So many unintended consequences. So that's the, the take on this. Well, I guess it also corresponds to a correction of the view that globalization is on a linear trajectory, that there's a path dependency, that it's only good if we continue to globalize even further. And that's where the correction element comes in. Just listening to you, I think it also requires an ability to manage deglobalization. And that's where I think the politics also of this come in. James, to what extent do you think there is a prospect of managing deglobalization rather than have deglobalization, as it were, run amok? I think Alicia makes a good point. We have to remember where we're starting from. There have been moments in history where globalization has collapsed, particularly after the First World War. So after the First World War, you had a global trade to GDP ratio of about 14%. That fell off a cliff and it never got back there until about 1980. But now it's at 25%, something like that. So let's imagine a future in which global trade falls by you know, some number of percentage points. So that will mean fewer efficiencies in the world economy. But as Alicia says, it doesn't have to be a catastrophe. And indeed, we do have to remember that the model of globalization that is celebrated by some economists was deeply divisive. 
environmentally problematic. And so it's possible to imagine, it's possible to imagine an optimistic scenario, one in which globalization is a little kinder, gentler, more sustainable, greener to various groups who didn't share the benefits of the last time around. The problem, I think, is that, as you say, all of this takes management. It takes cooperation and coordination. And at the moment, it's a very mixed picture. So you do see some new frameworks for cooperation. Here in Asia, you have the CPTPP agreement. You have the RCEP agreement. These are not the traditional kind of global American-led arrangements that we've seen, but they are something. There is life in the global trading system. But it is very difficult to imagine a managed form of deglobalization at a moment in which the world's two most important trading nations, America and China, are at one another's throats. And you see that in particular in the tech space, which Alicia mentioned. I mean, I think it's that the trends there towards a substantial form of decoupling are very clear. And the tension for that in the global trading system is obviously it's technology that is the big hope for the global trade system, not manufactured goods in containers as it was in the 1980s, but digital services on the cloud. And so I think that's a real risk factor that the area that those who are in favor of greater trade and integration, the the area that one would put most hope in, the bright side, is also the area of fiercest geopolitical competition. And that's a real element of complexity to how we see this developing. And Alicia, on this question of the political ability to manage deglobalization, how do you see the institutional question in this? I mean, what role is there for a WTO-like organization if we are moving towards patchy forms of deglobalization where some sectors are fragmenting, some are regionally integrating along different plurilateral free trade agreements like CPTPP, and some are being decoupled along the G2 axis of US and China. I mean, what role is there for international institutions? Well, this is the crux of the matter, and James has already started talking about it, and I can't agree more. I have no problem with gentle deglobalization because I tend to think in some areas we may have gone too far, but it has to be managed. It has to be managed cooperatively. And that's where I frankly don't see any direction towards that ultimate goal, if that's the goal. say Let's assume that that's the goal, not because we self-impose the goal, but because we see what's happening and the risk of global warming and pandemics, too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing kind of idea. Fine, then let's manage it. But I don't see it. And there's two ways to do it. One is, of course, we all become regional. We can't become global, we become regional. But any of these endeavors, and you mentioned one, but there's also RCEP, to me, and I may be far from you know the flashlights of that, but my impression is that they're dying out because it's not clear whether, again, that this magnificent force has in terms of uh, size and strength, which is the decoupling story, the US and China, may actually unravel a different story. So you just can't do what you were doing. Because if you say you remain in RCEP, what's your future with the US? Or those regional endeavors are in a standby situation. If that's the case, and there's no multilateral institutions really working in the way they should, and and I know the WTO is the most obvious, but think about the fund, yeah? We're sitting in the midst of uh, the largest crisis on earth, and they can't even think of a way to increase the resources. As simple as that. I mean, there's no single multilateral institution that is ready 
for what's happening in no way that I can think of being useful. And that's very, very concerning to me. And by the way, we're not yet fully there into creating institutions for the two ecosystems. So, you know, you think about AIB, well, it's a mixture. It's no such thing as institutions for one or the other yet. So we're in a vacuum and that's the worrisome and the risky thing. I end with this note. I think it's worse to be in a vacuum in the multilateral sense of the word, vacuum on the regional part, standby, and then no institutions for the for what I call the two ecosystems. That is worse than having two ecosystems. At least you know where you are. Now we don't really know where we are. And that that is why I think what James said is so risky on the coordination part of the story. That is the most worrisome part. No, I think that's a very valuable point. It reminds me, however, if I look at it purely from a European perspective, that the EU is trying to step into that vacuum, but only by re-emphasizing existing institutions. And I guess that also comes to how regional is globalization going to become? Are we really in this trajectory towards different regional regulatory blocks, regional supply chains, regional standards being dominant. How do you see that, James? I think more regional than we are at the moment. There clearly is an emergence of the standard setting blocks. And one of the post-COVID trends that is most significant is it's just much clearer now that there will be three, potentially four, as India grows, global standard setting blocks. And that's also going to be true, for instance, in the way that Things like post-COVID travel reopening um, will be driven by the rules set in the European Union, in America, in China. You know, the larger you are in a situation in which there is a geopolitical vacuum, the more clout you have. And so, yes, I, I, I think we're not going to see a fully regional and decentralized role because many regions don't have the government structure here in Southeast Asia, for instance. In a sense, regions have always been at the heart of globalization. So it's not necessary that this is going to be such a dramatic change. But I think companies will certainly be looking to, if they're not caught in the decoupling side of things, if they're merely trying to make their supply chains more resilient, then one of the obvious ways to do that is to localize production and to, to try and move closer to consumers in, in India, in Southeast Asia, in China, um, even if you're making in China only for China to, to avoid problems with the Americans. So yes, more regional than we are at the moment, but quite how regional, I, I think we're not clear on that yet. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about where are we moving towards and who are the winners and losers. At a time when the multilateral rules-based order is under threat, conversations about global trade and its contribution to prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020. This series of podcasts is brought to you by AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, the Bertelsmann Stiftung, is knowledge partner of the series.
We're back from our break, and I'm here with Alicia Garcia Herrero and James Crabtree. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. You mentioned China, and I, I want to ask Alicia about this just because I know that you've been working a lot on China. China has been one of the main beneficiaries of, say, ultra-globalization, as you called it. But it now also appears to be shifting gears. I mean, how should we position China in this broader deglobalization dynamic? This would be, in very simple terms, how I would describe it. China was a fan of globalization until it lasted. You know, I, I can understand that, you know. You, you enjoyed the ride, and rightly so, because, you know, that was China's right, and we all agreed, and I'm sure we all benefited. But once you have a huge market and it becomes increasingly difficult to operate on that multilateral basis and you feel threatened by those rules and regulations that somehow now seem to come after you, many are not multilateral, but seemingly so because, you know, they can come directly from the US or they can come from the WTO. Look at many things that latest decisions on China's market status after China basically went against the EU's decision the WTO basically said, sorry, you aren't, you know. So all of that, I think, is pushing China into a, maybe not the first best, but the second best is, you know, if you don't like me, I have my market, by the way, it's larger than yours. That's it. it. Very simple. And I think that is what dual circulation really is about. It's not only about self-reliance, but it's, it's slightly more complex. You know, I've grown up, I have what I need. If I need something, I let you know. I'm sure I can get it and obtain it. I have the means to do so. And by the way, I have a backyard. That's the second part of the dual circulation. I can export to captive markets. So why would I bother? And I think that's China's kind of second thought, maybe not the best of all worlds, maybe if life could continue the way it was, but it can't. So so that's kind of a second best option. And it's not such a bad option compared to smaller open economies. Let's accept it. Smaller open economies don't have that choice. China does. And on that point, James, you're in Singapore. Singapore, of course, has a global perspective, but it also very much looks towards China as well as to India. You've described India as potentially another sort of regulatory pole in this phase of deglobalization. How is Southeast Asia responding to, I guess, the pressures that are being exerted from these large economies that are trying to regionalize supply chains around them and through that also exert influence on the smaller economies? I would agree exactly with what Alicia said about China. I, I think in a sense, this it shows you what the China Belt and Road Initiative was really all about, uh, which wasn't just about building infrastructure. It was about the creation of a Chinese-centric value chain system, um, which allowed China to do exactly what Alicia just articulated, this new buzzword of dual circulation premised on the notion that China is going to have lots of countries to which it's connected, all of which are the BRI countries uh, with whom it can trade if it needs to, while also developing its domestic capacity. India's situation is a different one. I mean, A, India has been pummeled by the pandemic, and therefore its rise is going to be further, further delayed. And it's also at a much earlier stage in its development. Nonetheless, you can see in areas like technology that India is also beginning to throw its weight around. So India was the the inspiration behind the TikTok ban, which led President Trump to come up with his rather strange TikTok deal, which is in many ways emblematic 
of the direction in which the world is going on technology regulation, in which national security considerations are going to become the dominant way in which countries, not just America and China, but also also in, in the European Union and in countries like India, begin to look at the world of technology. Southeast Asia finds itself caught between this. Southeast Asia, rather like the old world, as Alicia said, you have a lot of small open trading economies that like to be able to trade with both America and China and everybody else. And so the position for Southeast Asia is very complicated. I mean, I think, frankly, what is most likely to happen is many countries in Southeast Asia will be drawn into the economic sphere of China, as they already have been, but drawn further in that direction. And eventually, that will have political consequences. But certainly, countries like Singapore don't want that to happen. They want to maintain the ability to interact with both of the superpowers and with other countries beside. And they hope to use the mantra in this part of the world that they don't have to choose. But the problem is that the space for not choosing is shrinking. And those who who are on that path are finding the path more precarious with every year that passes. Is that something we should be thinking about more, this fact that it resonates very much with what you hear in Europe as well, not wanting to choose, but deglobalization might actually create pressures where that's no longer possible. Is that a way we need to start thinking politically about this new period we're in, Alicia? Uh, I would agree. I think basically it's all about narrowing down what we thought were infinite possibilities. <laughs> we were back from those infinite possibilities to realism. The world is more complex than we thought it was in that kind of naive period of time where we were globalizing and going everywhere without really knowing where. And now I think we realize more about the risk of doing that, by the way. And also once you can do it, what it entails. I mean, it's more of, again, of, of a realistic vision of the world that we lost after, in my opinion, the collapse of the Soviet Union. I'm not saying we're back to the Soviet Union, but we're certainly back to constraints, to barriers, to that realism that says, yes, the world is big, but it's not really flat. It, it, it has bumpy roads for us to, to take. And countries need to find alliances. And those alliances might not only be like A or B, there could be C, which I think is a very interesting thing for us Europeans. What about if countries say, you know what, I don't feel like comfortable, you know, taking sides and I want others who feel the same way. I want to know what they think. I want to know what they want to do. And I think Europe has a role there, not as a new leader, but as an economic zone that is big enough to show the way in terms of not taking sides. I don't think many others can do that because of their relatively smaller size. Europe should, frankly speaking, something I expect from Europe, should do that first, should say, look, this is the way, neither nor, and this is how. I know it's difficult, but if we don't do it, we Europeans, who else can do it? That's my take on this. James, how do you see Europe's role in this? You're based in Singapore. You think a lot about Asian economies, but also from your vantage point, how do you see Europe's role in being able to forge that third way? Well, I think Europe's change, I think probably India's change in the aftermath of COVID and what's been happening has been the most significant, by which I mean India has jumped much more firmly into a, a what, basically an anti-Chinese camp over the last six months instead of trying to head between. But I think it's interesting that you, being in Europe, feel that Europe also has this rather Southeast Asian 
we don't really want to choose um, attitude because my perception looking from afar is that Europe is making its choice. And, and even though it doesn't much like Donald Trump, it is aligning much more strongly now against China than it has over the last decade. And that's even with certain kind of German trade-led mercantilism notwithstanding. So my sense is that, that as we get deeper into the geopolitical conflict between the US and China, that Europe will ultimately realize what side its bread is butted on and will kind of go over mostly to the China skeptic uh, side of things. You see that very clearly in the United Kingdom, in France and in Germany, and I suspect in other parts of Europe as well, even in Eastern Europe, where the 16 plus one grouping that China set up to try and divide the European Union has really lost a lot of its clout. There's a broader question, though, about what Europe's agenda is that you put your finger on. And yes, so Europe does have um, it lacks a real geopolitical position and a security position in Asia, but it does have strengths because of its economic size, its trading relationships, and its role in knowledge economy industries. And so Europe should be able to try to protect multilateral institutions, to show leadership in emerging areas that need coordination, whether that's artificial intelligence or electric vehicles, whatever it might be, different forms of technology regulation, as has been true in the regulation of privacy, where really Europe was a global standard setter. And so Europe, I think, has a critical role to play as trying to save the best of the multilateral order that we are now moving beyond, and also where it can in areas where the EU has real influence and its member states have real influence, to try and exert that influence much more forcibly than it has done before. The question of how it does that is very complicated. It, it, as with trade agreements, it's going to need new constellations of actors, new partnerships, new alliances. It's going to be a lot messier than the old world that we're leaving behind. But, but yes, I'm optimistic that Europe should be able to find a role and a, and a pretty positive role in this new era of fragmented globalization. I guess this leads also to the question of how we should think of winners and losers of deglobalization. I mean, the picture both of you paint that deglobalization will lead to a messy, perhaps more realistic form of politics and also of economies. Is this a period where the big blocks win? And if you're not part of one of those blocks, then you have to, along Kissingerian lines, you have to suffer what you must in terms of being forced to pick sides or have to navigate through this period of different regulatory systems if you're not in one of those big blocks? How should we think of winners and losers? I think the way that you couch that is very fair, that in an era in which we're not going to quite return to the mid-19th century of balance of power and realpolitik in quite the same way. This is still a globally integrated world, and there are still plenty of international institutions that, that are operating. Uh, but I think we are entering an era in which it's helpful to be a big country, and it's helpful to have as much of the full suite of power as you can manage. And that means it's helpful to have a very large military. It's helpful to have very large tech companies. It's helpful to have international organizations headquartered in your country. And therefore, it's a much more difficult environment if you are a small country. But in a sense, that merely is to say that let's imagine where I am here in Singapore or a smaller open trading country like where you are in Holland. Holland is part of the European Union. But the smaller you are, the more stake you have in trying to find ways to preserve some elements of the order that we've had before, one in which might is not always right and in which there's 
protection uh, for the smaller and more vulnerable. But no, I mean, I think being realistic about it, I think we are entering a world in which it's going to be more comfortable to be a big and powerful beast and less comfortable to be small and therefore being part of one of these blocks or to be in one of these corners of the world is reassuring. And so if you look at a country like Britain, which has voluntarily removed itself from a large block just at the moment when these things become useful, it makes something like the Brexit decision look even worse in retrospect than perhaps it was when the Brexiters were dreaming it up a decade or more ago. Alicia, do you agree? And perhaps along those lines, is it possible to identify, given what we know so far also about the trajectory that COVID has had as an accelerant of some of these trends to to identify economic winners and losers? Well, I very much agree with James. Sorry, I smiled or even laughed a little bit because when he said just at the time it, they were turning useful as if they weren't before. And I know that even we Europeans or, or continental Europeans sometimes doubt about the usefulness of the whole thing. But you're right. I mean, if beyond the judgment, whether it's been useful or not, you're absolutely right. There's no better time to be in a block than today. And I think the important thing is that Finally, and I really want to emphasize that what finally the European Union gets its advantages. It's not only about, you know, the things we know, the for the freedoms, you know, the, the single market and so on, which of course are interesting, but it's really about belonging to a group that is big enough, as long as it's not fragmented, and we could talk about this for hours, that it can actually withstand this pressure. And in that regard, I fully agree. But I have to also think about the 14th century, uh, you know, Renaissance uh, period where you had this league of small cities in Italy, not even a, a real uh, national state. And they had to deal with, you know, a united at the time Castilla and Aragon or or actually the Ottoman Empire for that matter, you know, and a very strong France, which of course, conquer part of Italy and then Spain, the other half. But the reality is that the ideas were coming from these small cities. And in a way, although they were being moved around, uh, shattered around by those magnificent powers, and I'm comparing them with, uh, you know, this elephants that you were discussing today, the ideas were coming from these very small cities. Why? Because they believed in, you know, Basically, they were moving into rational ideas and giving ground to basically the Illuminism or, you know, all of that, I think, could be replicated today. Because in a world where you have, let's call them pushy powers, or I could even think of worse words for that. But, you know, there could be room for small, agile, clever, innovative, small open economies. They may not be in the best of all times. They may have to depend on one or another, but they could still be wealthy if they find their comparative advantage and keep it very closely to their heart. Meaning the point is how to protect it. Yeah. And because there might not be, you know, the legal international legal framework to do that. But I'm just saying that although it looks really scary, I agree for small open economies, they might find a way to, to do this. Uh, I hope so. It's fascinating also to think about which areas we can then see that happening, also because the new growth areas are the ones, as James said, you as well, Alicia, the high-tech sectors, 
they're the ones that are most subject to the political tensions associated with deglobalization and primarily decoupling. It's going to be fascinating to watch how small open economies can be creative and develop those new initiatives without having to choose sides, if you will. I guess that leads to the question of, is it all doom and gloom? I mean, are there any silver linings to this? One of you said earlier that perhaps globalization had overshot. Alicia, you said this, that it's time for a correction, that it's time to develop a more sustainable, more environmentally friendly form of globalization. But in economic terms, are there sectors that are going to continue globalizing? Are there areas where you're not going to see this fragmentation? Or are there new growth sectors that we should be thinking of? I think you're going to see a different geometry of globalization within companies, for instance. So if you just look at what we're doing now, uh, Alicia's in Taipei, I'm in Singapore, you're in Holland, and our producer is in Nebraska. It's perfectly clear that there's going to be a kind of move towards a different type of globalization within large enterprises. It might be difficult or more difficult now to have a truly giant globe bestriding multinational of the sort that chief executives might have dreamt of in the 1990s or Mark Zuckerberg might might still dream of today. But within companies that operate at a global scale, it's pretty clear that there's going to be reorganization as we understand that it's possible to do things very differently in terms of the way teams are structured, whether you all need to be in the same city or not, and that kind of thing. So I think there's plenty of scope for some measure of more globalization in the future. And a lot of that, as I said at the beginning, is going to be driven by technology. You have these two fundamental forces that drove the high era of globalization. One was technology and one was politics. And technology is still driving forward. Um, But even there, as I say, if you're Mark Zuckerberg, five or 10 years ago, you really did have the dream that you were going to be the global tech platform for everyone. And, And your valuation was based on that sitting in Silicon Valley the notion that that you could be in almost every market. And it's now clear that that isn't going to happen. You can't be in China. You are going to increasingly have problems in countries like like India. You're going to have to adapt what you're doing to different parts of the world, different legal regulations, different regulations on data localization, all sorts of things. And so even while technology is pushing forward some areas of globalization, you're going to see this. um, it, It will have to bend and contort to the realities, the more complex realities, as Alicia put it, of a new geopolitical world. Alicia, how do you see this? I think very similarly, perhaps I would add one more aspect. I mean, we hear a lot about this K-shape of post-COVID world where skewed income distribution. One thing is clear, the cost of being educated in a globalized world with what that meant is actually higher than in the current situation, meaning we're all basically stuck where we are. In a way, we become more equal in terms of opportunity to educate yourself. It's just something ironic in a way. I actually think that there's some forces. Think about creating a small company, digital services, yeah? Extracting talent for digital services. Unless we over-regulate this and yes, we become, you know, like there's only two clouds in the world and you either choose one. Well, then you choose one, but you can still excel in that one. Somehow I feel that because we have massively reduced the cost of access, simply because not those who can afford it can actually do it. You just can't go to the US. Maybe you won't even get the visa for that matter, no matter how rich you are. That is an equalizing force that wasn't there before. And I think that's a huge silver lining that we're missing. 
One thing is to say, yes, there will be uh, unemployment, K shape and so on. But I'm talking about opportunities here. I'm as stuck as a poorer person. I may have more resources, but at the end of the day, I'm saving because I can't spend my resources. I just need to do exactly the same I would do with fewer resources. I just need to be clever enough to use my time properly. And that's something talent-driven people can do, no matter their resources. So I actually think there's an equalizing force in what we're living in, that, in this kind of people-to-people deglobalization. I'm focusing on that now. So there is positive aspects to, to this indeed. That's a great note to almost end on, because I have one final question, and that goes back to the geopolitics that we already discussed. One of our previous recordings where we talked about the dysfunctional trade triangle between the US, the EU, and China, one of our participants made the point that from a US perspective, there's a policy-driven push for decoupling from the idea that that would make the United States safer and more secure economically and politically, but it might actually have the reverse effect because decoupling comes with certain degrees of political tension. How do you see that interconnectedness between the messy deglobalization that we're moving towards fragmentation versus decoupling versus regulatory blocks and political stability? And what should we be advising senior policymakers in government how to deal with that? James? I think this is a very complicated question. I mean, you put your finger on an, on an interesting point. On the one hand, there is a case not just that the old model of globalization went too far and that we, we should welcome attempts to try and create one that is a little less intense, a little gentler, a little greener and more sustainable, but equally a model of deep integration between the US and China, which we have at the moment, is problematic because all of these connections create tensions. And so you could imagine a situation where the US and China separated to some degree, and that that might create a new equilibrium. You could use the British phrase, good fences make good neighbors, meaning that by having a degree of separation, perhaps there would be fewer cause for conflict. So let's say you create new zones in which national security considerations have exceptions. So there's much less trade in those areas where both countries are concerned about national security, but in areas like screws and widgets and those kind of things, and higher value versions of those, then then everything's okay. The problem is twofold. The one is that as you create these national security exceptions, this creates a kind of rolling political process that is very hard then to stop. That's what we see at the moment. I mean, if TikTok is a national security threat, then frankly, so is everything else. And so this creates a, a rolling political dynamic. Um, and that threatens a kind of negative downward spiral. And so that's really the problem, that managing a process of gradual, sensible deglobalization that will lead not to a catastrophic fall off a cliff, but to some kind of new stable equilibrium that will satisfy both the US and China both for their stakeholders. That, I think, is plausible, but it's also very difficult. And there are certainly more optimistic scenarios in which the, the politics get more out of hand, particularly if Donald Trump is re-elected. Alicia, do you have any thoughts on how we move in a managed, sustainable and peaceful way to that new equilibrium? I wish I had, uh, then I would try to make good use of it. But I want to add to what James said in terms of your question, really, on whether it is the decoupling that is having these negative consequences, especially in the U.S., 
frankly speaking, I think that these consequences we're seeing, yeah, and the riots and everything else, are not coming from the decoupling, are coming from many, many things, but also from that ultra globalization and the impact it had on the US and other developed economies. So it's like a reaction to the past. It's not necessarily a reaction to the present. Will the reaction to the present be any better? Well, in as far as the globalization also has gains, and you can think of the cheap products that could be purchased and all of the things we've learned, maybe the reaction will be even worse. But I just wanted to clarify that I don't think what we see now is a reaction to decoupling. It's a reaction to ultra-globalization without perhaps taking care of income distribution issues or things we all know about. So that's why it's too early to know what will be the social reaction to decoupling. I don't think we know yet because it's just too early. And a lot will, as James pointed out, I think, depend on the outcome of an election in November. It's been fascinating to talk to both of you, Alicia Garcia Herrero and James Crabtree, about how globalization will change. And I'm sure it's something we're going to be returning to in future AIG Global Trade Series discussions. Hopefully next year, live in person as the pandemic recedes and we're able to travel and execute in-person globalization again. But for now, it's been fascinating talking to you through this podcast. And I want to thank both of you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, thank you very much for having us. The AIG Global Trade Series is an international partnership between AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and interviews from partners in the Global Trade Series and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020.